Hello, podcast listeners. This is your host, Chuck Tuck, on the Open Mic Show with Chuck Tuck. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Joe Dredd, longtime Seattle resident and musician. So we cover a lot of grounds here. We talk about all his experiences of growing up in the Seattle music scene. We also get into a little bit of about what's happening in the Seattle music scene today. So enjoy the show, and we'll catch you around. So today's podcast is going to be with Joe Dredd of Seattle, longtime musician and uh, overall good guy. So, Joe, welcome. Joe, welcome to the show. If you want to give a little Thanks, bit Chuck, of... Thanks, for having me on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a Saturday morning, so it's like, well, all right, is Joe going to be awake after a long night of partying? <laughs> you know what? Uh, there's not a whole lot of late night partying for me anymore. I'm uh, I'm I'm in my late fifties, and yeah, that doesn't happen as often as it used to. And, and boy, it happened a lot back in the eighties and the nineties. Oh, I can imagine. So uh, yeah, if you want, give a little bit of background about yourself and uh, what you're doing now with the music scene. All right. Well, uh, when it comes to actually playing in the Seattle music scene, I. Uh, I, uh, my, my first crack at being a professional musician was a cover band that I joined when I was 20 years old. And they, they immediately took me out on the road. We'd be out on the road for like three weeks out of the month, home for a week and then back out again. So I kind of cut my teeth early on, on that road stuff and found out that living on the road isn't what it's all cracked up to be. Damn. So, uh, it, it was, it was, it was a start, you know, and, and I, I wasn't good. I mean, who's good when they first start, you know? Um, I wound up get, getting booted out of the band because not only was I not a phenomenal bass player, but I was I was a little difficult to live with on the road. Uh, uh, I was uh, I was, I was kind of nitpicky about shit. So. No, <laughs> no, not, not a not a prima donna, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, I had no right to be, but I just always wanted the best for me. And if it got in the way of other people, sometimes you know I, I would step on some toes because I was always. Uh, I was always looking out for number one because nobody else was looking out for me except for me. That so is, there we go. That is so true. So what were some of those things that you were very, very particular about? Oh, God. Um, so I share, who I was sharing a room with, for one. Uh, we had a, a, a lead guitarist who was uh, very, can I, can I say it's very Italian. I mean, he was so Italian. This guy had to shave five times a day so not to have like a growth and he he had a, a constant body odor about him <laughs> hell of a nice guy but he carried this funk with him all the time and uh that was like yeah i don't know about that uh, and you know it's, and there's other other little things but uh i don't, don't want to get into all that but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm just glad uh, that uh, i you know I, I started that way and got a little taste of it then uh, i uh, i met uh the guys in this, uh, it was a glam band in Seattle Slaughterhouse Five and became best friends with the drummer. And this is the band that I wanted to be in. And so I was hanging out with them and hoping that they needed a bass player. And when they did need a bass player, I didn't get the position because the leader of the band uh, went by the name of Tommy Gunn. He's like a five foot seven inches, nine foot six four. <laughs> So uh, he said that there's no way he was going to be on stage with me because I was so damn tall. <laughs> but of course, years later, 
I wound up being in four different bands with the guy over like almost 30 years. So. Shit. <laughs> damn. Well, I, I suppose yeah. it's the ability once they find out, all right, this guy, Joe, he can play. I want to play with him. Yeah. And you know, there's, I, I, uh, there was a lot of people that didn't know what to think of me that had never seen me play. Uh, as a matter of fact, before Alice in Chains got put together, I ran into Jerry Cantrell down at the Alki Beach. This is uh, right after Diamond Lie split up. And I told him, like, hey, man, I'm, I'm a bass player. I'm looking for something. He's like, well, who have you played with? And I couldn't give him a name of anything that he knew of. So he just blew me off as a plate. So uh, not long after that, uh, my, my first band with this had Tommy Gun was a, a band called Black is Black. And we rehearsed at the music bank out in Ballard. And that's where Alice in Chains started. And uh, then uh, Jerry saw me play. He's like, dude, I thought you were a fucking flake when you talked to me down on the beach. But uh, no, you, you know what you're doing. But of course, Mike Starr was already in the band. And there was no chance of me go- getting in that one. So, And I, I imagine that uh, back in the day, there were a lot of, um, I don't know if you really, did you really go out on auditions or you were just around? No, I, I actually did some auditions here and there, and, and nothing ever really came of it. Uh, I remember some audition I went to out in Linwood, and uh, oh, this guitarist went and jammed in this basement, and there was this guy that was laying on the couch watching TV. He's like, oh, that's our drummer. He was the, the drummer from the Edgar Winter Group when they had the big hits with Free Ride and Frankenstein. Oh, I got I can't remember the guy's name. But I'm like, yeah, I, I know who that is. As a matter of fact, well, I think it was my first rock concert was the Edgar Winter Group with Rick Derringer on lead guitar. And I told him, like, dude, I saw you play when I was like 14 or 15. Holy crap. God, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. That's an old memory that just came up there. <laughs> but, you know, back back in those days, you know, Seattle had the, the, the music rag called The Rocket. And I always look at the musicians wanted ads for the rock bass player. And, you know, I call people and, and whatnot and, and, you know, feel it out. And actually, I did call an ad in there once and talk to this kid, 17 years old, putting together a glam band. And everybody was going to have stage names that were kind of, uh, you know, kind of glammy, kind of model-esque. And um, I passed on it because I was a bit older than them. And uh, I wound up being the, the guy I talked to was Lane Staley. Huh. Well, <laughs> yeah. don't you wish now? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, see, back then, uh, when he was putting that, he put that band together, and I got to be friends with him and those guys. And, yeah, that still wouldn't have been my thing. It was, it was very glammy. Uh, the teased hair, and the, they were they were they were styling the hair like Duran Duran did back in those days. And, and it, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't my thing. Wait a second. You know, Joe, I saw a picture of you in this black and white thing, and it was something through the University of Washington. Not that you went there, but they had it, and it looked like <laughs> a pretty glammy picture, laying back with that bass and the hairs all puffy. It looked like uh, John Taylor from. Uh, Duran Duran is what it reminded me of. Yeah, you know, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I had a, a white Gibson Explorer base with black fishnet stretched over the body. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, yeah. I never wore makeup. I never owned spandex. So give me that. I did I did tease the hair up, but I didn't uh, do the spandex and the makeup thing. Well, I'm glad of that. I just can't see a six foot four guy. Well, you know what? No, take that back. That would be Twisted Sister. 
Or even uh, Robin Crosby of Rat, who's oh, like six foot seven. Damn, that's right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So for you, we're talking about circa 82, 83-ish, right around there, 82 to 84. Um, uh, actually, uh, let's, let's, let's actually push it more towards 85, I do believe, because, uh, yeah, that was around 85. When I, when I, got, uh, when I started that uh, band with uh, Tommy, Black is Black, I still have a flyer from we played uh, Kent Skate King, and it was like a, a last blast of summer thing. And it was us, Tramp Alley, Mother Love Bone, and Alice in Chains. And so that was summer of 88. Tramp Alley. Oh, no. <laughs> no, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, those guys, those guys were nice guys. And they all lived in a band house. They called the Tramp House. And they had hellacious parties. But the, the problem with that is there were underage girls there. So you had to be very careful. Uh, oh, uh, we'll, we'll keep that one off the record. No. <laughs> <laughs> nah, go ahead. That was a long time ago. Oh, damn. Um, memories, right? Shit. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, did you? I mean, you played around a lot once you got once you started gigging and being local, like uh, the local bass guy, right? And there... Oh yeah, you know, some some things come go, and uh, you know there was there was a chance of being in a band that was signed and uh, tried to make that happen. Uh, but me and the singer didn't see eye to eye and I was subsequently let go mm. and they got signed and uh, they had to, they went on the road uh, living in a van, pulling a trailer. And from what I understand, they hated it, which is fine. I didn't have to do that. Yeah. You know, you but, know, uh, yeah, it's some, uh, a life that you did not need to live. Right, right, yeah, yeah. They it wound up basically it wound up imploding on them. They had a, they had a singer who had a, a drinking problem, and they uh, they eventually wound up kicking him out of the band. And then uh, the lead guitarist took over the singing duty, which he shouldn't have. They should have just found another singer, which they didn't. And then the, their uh, label left them out of the last bit of their contract. And and then that uh, guitarist wound up getting very jaded and bitter because he had his chance and he blew it. So, Man. so, so he's got to live with that. So anyway, you know, I imagine that there's a lot of people in the Seattle area that had opportunities and, or, or that should have made it and that never did. So, I was gonna... Oh yeah. There's a lot of people that should have made it, but never did. And that, you know, it's, it's, it's it takes more than talent. There's, there's luck it's, uh, who, you know, you know, to make that happen. Uh, also, what what the industry is doing at this time. Because right now, you can't get signed to do shit. Everybody's doing this stuff at home. You might as well just give your stuff away online and hope people come to your show and buy, uh, buy your T-shirts and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I imagine that that's a huge difference between back in the day. We'll say back in the day would be uh, late 80s through uh, mid 90s compared to now. I mean, uh-huh just can't get the draw right it's just hard that's true very true it's a very different world now i'm glad that i started playing music when i did to see it when uh, and actually have a chance to try to make it and uh, i'll tell you one time i got mistaken for somebody that i wasn't some crazy little like 14 or 15 year old fan thought i was somebody that i'm not and would not let me go she had a hold of my fingers and would not let me go and was kind of freaking out and that's when I went, you know what? I don't want to be famous. I would like to get paid well for playing music. 
but when it comes to interviews and whatnot, let somebody else do it. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the Tom, like Tom Hamilton is an Aerosmith. Yeah. If you don't, if you if you aren't a hardcore Aerosmith fan, it's, you don't know who the hell he is. He can walk right by you, and you wouldn't think Aerosmith. Dude. And I, like, I told the guys, I'll be Tom Hamilton. You guys go be Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. <laughs> and, and speaking of Hamilton, dude is an underrated, at least from what I hear from people when they talk, you know, bass players. They don't bring him up, but he is freaking awesome. Yeah, Tom. Tom is a great bass player, and you know, he's been there since day one of the band, and and still doing it. And good for him. Yep. And I want one of those sparkly GNLs. Oh, <laughs> yeah. One of his signatures. Oh yeah. Um. So, obviously, you're the bass player, a bass player. Did you play guitar right. or anything like that uh, prior to getting into bass, or how did you start playing the bass? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, I started learning guitar as a kid. I, I started in third grade, and I was learning to read music. And within a year, I just kind of went, yeah, whatever. I, just, I told my mom, you can stop paying for these lessons. I'm really not that interested. But I had this guitar, and I still got comfortable with actually just picking on it. But I wasn't, I wasn't learning any songs that I liked, you know, so I got really bored with it. But when I got in junior high, there was a, a guitar class, and they, they taught us chords instead of reading notes and whatnot. And they were transcribed uh, music off the radio for us to learn how to play. And that got me back into it. So at that point, okay, I'm, I'm going to play guitar. I'm not a lead guitarist, so let's see. Let me just concentrate on playing rhythm guitar or whatever, just so, I can, just so I can get on stage. I've wanted to be on stage ever since I was four years old when I saw the Beatles live on TV and all the girls screaming for them. I'm like, I want to do that. So I knew at the age of four, that's what I wanted to do. But it wasn't until February of 1976 that uh, I got two tickets to see Kiss for my birthday present. And it was the Alive Tour, right, when Kiss was exploding. Mm -hmm. And be before that, I always considered the bass player was the boring guy that hung out by the drummer and didn't do shit. And I saw Gene Simmons, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can be a bass player and be on the front of the stage and take control of the whole situation. Look at this guy. It's like you, you can't stop looking at him. He's so damn entertaining. I can do that. So uh, I went home and broke the E and B string on my guitar on purpose and started trying to learn bass lines on, on an acoustic guitar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, all right, what was the first Kiss song that you started to uh, play or really learn? Oh, uh, Black Diamond. It, it was Very something nice. about well, Gene, Gene, like he slides, slides on the notes on, a lot on that song. And I remember watching him play that. And all this whoa sliding up and down the neck, and I'm like, that's fucking cool. But of course, I was 15, you know. I, I got to throw this in there. We had a very, very similar um, growing up with music, similar but uh -huh. reversed. So, I fourth grade guitar, learning chords, then going to sixth grade. Dad says, I'm gonna pay for some lessons. I went, we're learning scales and reading music. He hears me and he goes, what is that? I said, I'm learning music. He goes, where's the song? So we have to learn scales. <laughs> he goes, I'm not going to pay for it if you're not learning to play anything. And then there went the guitar. 
and then oh, and then the bass because with the ear and my first song of Kiss, "Watching You" is the first one I learned. Dude, that's not an easy song to play when you're when you're new. But I loved it, just like you with the live album. <laughs> yeah, the live tour and everything. I fell in love with those guys, and same with you, Gene Simmons. But I'm not that giant, and uh, I was relatively quiet in those days. But yeah, yeah. so uh, there you are. You're learning to play Black Diamond on a six string with only four strings. So you're right. Yeah. Well, eventually, I wound up. Uh, somebody came up with a uh, a, a P bass knockoff. It had flat wound strings on it, and I'm like, "Oh, flat wound strings—that's perfect for sliding, you know." Because I wanted to slide on black diamond. And then it wasn't until a while later that no, no, you need round wound strings to get that brightness. And so, you know, and, and I was learning. I was 15, you know. Yeah. And so I didn't. I didn't know shit. And I, one of the reasons I—I uh, I mean, other than just you know the Gene Simmons influence—I I didn't know anybody else that was a bass player. I knew guitarists. I knew drummers. I knew singers. And I'm like, well, I don't know any other bass players, so if I play bass, I'll be in demand. And actually, I told Gene Simmons that story the first time I talked to him, and he goes, that's the exact reason why I became a bass player, because I didn't know any other bass players, and if I was the bass player, I'd always be in demand. And Wait so we, we had that in common. Wait a second. So you met Gene Simmons. Was it? Uh, more than once, yeah. Damn. <laughs> well, no, that, that, that story's coming up. Wow. All right, I, I I should have been looking out for you uh, in my younger days and hanging beside you, but then again, one bass player is plenty. And, and you know the right. thing I always say about bass is the bass player is the last person to know and always the first person to go. I don't know if you found yeah, that to be true. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Well, no. Okay, so we can we can we want to head into the Gene Simmons side of my story. Uh, no, we got still plenty of this growing up stuff. I mean, oh, okay, hell, okay. yeah, memories. Yeah. You're even getting me okay, to think well, about shit. Well, we jumped from the '80s and then back over to the '70s, and so we're kind of bouncing all over the place. Yeah, open conversation. Yeah. Okay. But uh, yeah, so um, you know, this first bass that you got, P bass knockoff. Would it happen to have been a Mateo? Uh, tell you, tell you the truth, I really don't remember. There's, I don't, I don't think there was actually a name on the headstock. I didn't have it that long. I wound up running across. I'm not even sure what age I was when I got it, but of course, you know, uh, Kiss used Gibson guitars and Pearl drums because they wanted the best. At least that's what it said on the back of the album. So uh, I don't know where I got it from, but I ran across a. I think it was a late '60s. Gibson EBO that had the it had the slotted headstock so the the tuner stuck out the back and it, you know basically looked like an SG and so that was my first like real bass real name bass and only because it was a Gibson it just uses Gibson and that's why I got it. Yeah, uh, those guys influence a lot of people musically, yeah, and otherwise. So. Yeah, and product too. A lot of Gibsons were sold to uh, little Kiss fans in school. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, for the listeners that are listening and they don't, they don't know um, about you and where you grew up, we were talking about Seattle. Were you in Seattle itself or were you, like, north of Seattle? 
you know. Oh no, I, I grew up. I grew up. I grew up in the city limits in uh, the community known as Ballard. My uh, folks moved there in 1967. I started public school there in 1967. Gotcha. So I've always been a Seattle boy. I, I lived in Bellevue for maybe a year. Um, Burien for less than a year, but pretty much Seattle is Seattle proper is my is my home. So really, you did grow up in the Seattle music scene. I mean, since, yeah. since the beginning. Uh, yeah, yeah, I saw, saw uh, Malfunction play at the Gorilla Gardens. That's the first time I met Andy Wood was uh, down there. Um, yeah, yeah, I've always been a Seattle guy. Always. Nice. So a little bit more about you if you want to, like I said, we could just jump around. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be bringing back a lot of memories for a lot of people that are going to be listening to this. So, um, yeah. So. Oh, okay. Well, let's see the, uh, let's see. I mentioned uh, that my, my first actually original rock band was, was black is black. That was during the music bank, Alice in Chains days. Uh, that band broke up and then uh, me and Tommy Gunn started war babies. Of course that didn't end too well. Uh, after that, let's see what year was, let's see. Oh yeah, then uh, yeah. After War Babies fell apart, me and Tommy started uh, Motorland. That went about two years with the uh, as a three piece, and then that slowly fell apart as well. And then after that, I decided, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go join a band uh, with guys I've never met before. And uh, our, our my drummer from Motorland, Thomas Nadeau, he's like, I know this this band called Bent Richard. I've known these guys for years. They're looking for a bass player, so I went and saw them. And they were primarily like punk rock bands, like short songs, really fast hitting. And this singer who was like 300 pounds, but full of energy and just so entertaining on stage and a great pipes. This guy could sing. And he tells the story that after I saw them play, he comes down off the stage. I walk up. I go, hi, I'm Joe Dredd. He's oh, nice to meet you, Joe. And I, and I tell him, I'm your new bass player. He's like, really? You're our new bass player? I go, I'm telling you right now. I'm your new bass player. I just saw you play and you blew me away. I'm going to be in your band is what I told him. And sure enough, <laughs> I wound up being in his band. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, That's the story he tells me. I, I don't remember it happening, but he loves telling that story. <laughs> and sorry if I throw in some stuff while we're talking, like, like you're saying, certain memories pop up. Uh, larger guy, yeah. vocalist, Tad. Remember Tad? Yes, I'm Tad Doyle. He's yeah. still around. He's yeah. still doing some music. Wow. He's he's gotten quite quite gray over the years, but he's a lovely human being. Yeah, I think we've lovely all, human beings. We've all either gotten bald or gray, or not all, dude. You still you still have your locks going. <laughs> Anytime you want, you grow it and you got it. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm still growing it, but uh, every now and then I need some color because I'm not ready to grow old just yet. <laughs> Oh, geez. So I want to touch back on uh, gear, equipment, uh, because like I said, through the history now, now you're you're starting to really play in these different bands. Um, Gibson was an influence because of Kiss. So I'm going to throw this out. You ever own a Ripper or the Grabber? <laughs> Actually, I, I have in my possession a 1976 grabber that a friend found at a yard sale for 150 bucks. Oh, and, and now the reason I had to have this grabber is in 1993, 
uh, Jeff Gilbert, who is, I, I call him the C- Seattle's heavy metal god. Because uh, he uh, he was the one who did on what KCMU on Sunday nights he would do Brain Pain on the radio where he played nothing but heavy metal. He was the first guy to play Metallica on Seattle radio airwaves, and uh, he was you know working for this radio station. And uh, actually, at, at the time, there was a Z Rock which came out of uh, Dallas on 1600 AM in Seattle, and he would actually do live shows. And he says, "Hey man, the the what the the kiss what was it kiss uh the kiss unplugged album anniversary is coming up oh no no it's uh, kiss alive three was going to be released and he's like hey man um i want to do a listening party and i told him about this band idea i had where everybody in the band was gene simmons and we did nothing but gene songs and i told him like a year before i have this idea for this band but i don't know what to call it so he gives me a call. He says, I want to do this thing. and I want you to put this band together and play, but what are you going to call it? And I go, why don't we call it Gene's Addiction? And he loved it. So uh, we did this show at Crocodile in 93. And we did, oh, I think maybe like nine songs. And we were doing deep cuts. We didn't do God of Thunder. We didn't do Rock and Roll All Night. We opened with All the Way and did Going Blind and Two Timer. And it was for the hardcore Kiss fans. And because of that band, we got we got some serious talk going on around about us. It was supposed to be a one-and-done thing in 93. Last time we played as a band was our 20th anniversary show. But the reason I got that grabber is because I needed it for playing, doing the Jeans Addiction. A friend of mine had a black grabber, and I would borrow his. And after doing like two or three shows borrowing his, then I got my own. And I still have it. So Wow. Yeah, it's... There are some bases that I wish I would have held on to, like the uh, the old original Kramer uh, axe, the actual axe Gene Simmons. Oh, you you had one of those? I bought it for three hundred and ten dollars, brand new from Jews Music Center in in Linwood, and I took it home. I was like, I'm never going to play this. This is ugly. I thought it was so cool sitting it, you know, sitting up on its stand. I returned it. Why oh, did I do dude. that? Yeah. <laughs> You, you, you know what? I don't know the number, but do you know how much those go for now? Nah, I don't even want to know. <laughs> yeah, especially yeah, the, yeah, especially the Kramer one with the aluminum, the fork head. Yeah, that that was the ugly thing about it was that headstock. Eh, no, I, you know what's bad, though, is I went and I got a red flying V Kramer with, with the same chrome V uh, <laughs> headstock thing. I just thought the axe part, I was like, I thought it was cool, but ah, I, I don't think I could play this anywhere. <laughs> yeah, the hanging on the wall is nice, but on stage, they're a little awkward to play. Yeah, uh, and I, I would imagine that it's pretty expensive now. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a sad spot, sore spot. Uh, well, now you know because of because of uh, doing that band Gene's Addiction, that's how Gene Simmons found out about me. Um, Chris Cornell's uh, wife at the time, Susan Silver, she uh, she faxed him back when they were fax machines. She faxed him one of our flyers, and he immediately called her. And he's like, "What? What? What is this? What is this?" Because he's all about him. His ego is huge, and he knows it. And uh, she, because of that, she was able to hook me up with a phone call with Gene. And, uh, yeah, and, and like I said, that was like the first time, but uh, I've actually met him in person because of Gene's addiction. 
And he actually called me not that long ago when he was doing the Family Jewels TV show. Mm-hmm. He called me and he says, like, is there any video you guys on YouTube that I can look at? Because we're thinking about incorporating you guys into an episode of the show. And that's as far as that went. I never heard anything back. So, wow. whatever. Yeah. But hey, Gene Simmons has called me before. <laughs> and not many people can say that. And, and, well, yeah, well, no, actually, there are a lot of people, but yeah. not a lot of people we know. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. But you also have to have something yeah. to offer him, or he's got to. You've got to have something he wants. Yeah, you know what? That's that's a total fact. I I wound up uh, after we did that first show. I had some T-shirts printed up, and uh, I I had his mailing address because uh, I sent him an autographed picture of the band, which he put in the first history book which I think is just awesome. I could die tomorrow and I'm happy. But uh, he, uh, I, I sent him two of our T-shirts and he did a photo shoot with the band with Kiss Was Unmasked wearing one of my T-shirts. And I was oh. like, oh, there we go. Oh, yeah. And now people are like, hey, how do I get one of these shirts? And I wanted to print up more and sell them to the general public. I asked Gene if I could do that and he said no. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. It has, his, it has his image on it. He goes, no. We uh, we go after enemies for stuff like this. We don't want to have to go after friends as well. Yeah, and I'm and I'm like, Gene says I'm his friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's like prove it. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like open up the first kiss history book, history, and you'll see it. My shirt. Yeah, the, yeah, the first kiss. First, no, actually, you, you'll see a picture of me in the first history book. Really? Uh, the picture of the whole band. We we autographed the picture and sent it to him. And I even signed it with my real last name because it's like I never knew it was going to wind up in a goddamn book. I thought it was going to be just part of his, his display in his office or something, you know? Oh, man. Oh, well, yeah. hey, it's like having a maiden name. You know, you get married, you do whatever, and they're looking you up like, I can't find that, him. I can't that's find true, him. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I actually was going to illegally change my name to Dread, but my wife's like, no, I do not want to be Mrs. Joe Dread. I'm like, so all my friends, you are Mrs. Joe Dread. She goes, no, that's fine, but I don't want Dread as my last name on my license. It's like, okay, all right. Oh, well, Dread is good. Yeah, uh, it works for me. Yeah. So, um, so more of the band stuff. I It's... Uh... You know, Seattle area, My Sister's Machine. I love those guys back in the yeah. day. Yeah. Actually, uh, when, uh, uh, before the whole thing of War Babies coming together, uh, I wound up jamming with uh, with Owen and Owen Wright and Chris Goaty when they were starting to put together My Sister's Machine. And it just didn't gel with me. Mm-hmm. So then they, uh, they found Chris Ivanovich to, to play bass. And at a party not long after that, I found out that, that uh, Chris actually wanted to play with Tommy Gunn, who I was playing with at the time. And it was kind of like he wanted, he wanted to be where I was, and I tried to be where he wound up being. <laughs> anyway, it just didn't work out. It just didn't work out. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, for a big city, Seattle's a small town when it comes to the music community. And it used to be very small before the whole goddamn dr- grunge thing took off. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you when the, when the whole brunch thing happened is what was it? The uh, Soundgarden got signed, Alice got signed, 
uh, Love Bone fell apart after the death of Andy, but then came back together as Pearl Jam. And then, of course, we all know that when Pearl Jam first released, it just went nuts, and people went nuts about the Seattle grunge scene. Mm-hmm. And so everybody was getting attention, and uh, me and my buddies were like, all right, everybody's about Pearl Jam. Everybody's about Seattle Crunch. When's it going to go back to normal? And things started to calm down. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Things are going to start going back to normal. And we can start just being Seattle again that nobody cares about. And then Nevermind came out and everything fucking blew up like a goddamn atomic bomb, man. And that's when I go, there's no going back. We're never going to have the Seattle music scene like we had before. It's out of control. Half the bands that were out playing in clubs had moved here from another state so they could get signed. I saw it from everywhere. They were coming from everywhere to Seattle so they could get signed and be famous. You know what? It's interesting that you say all that because now that I think about it, you're right that that was kind of the demise of the Seattle music scene with the grunge. It it was. It it was. exploded and then it imploded. I mean, bad, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, before everybody started getting signed, it was a, a tight-knit community. We would be at each other's parties. We'd be at each other's shows. It's like everybody knew at least one person from all the other bands, and everybody got along. And uh, when it became a competition to get signed, uh, things got cutthroat and real kind of dirty and nasty. And uh, it, it killed the, that sweet vibe of everybody being brothers. Yeah, because, I mean, there are great places to play back in the day. The OK Hotel, Under the Rail, um, and then, you know. That's that, that the Vogue, bit. even even yeah. at the Vogue, you know. That, that was a fun place. I remember the Vogue, and I loved it. Uh, with no door. No door for the bathroom. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or, or a line of women behind you t- trying to get to the hall in the men's room yep. while guys are pissing in the trough. <laughs> uh, well, the, la- the ladies had one toilet in their bathroom, so. <laughs> You know, they, they would line up behind us while we were had our dicks in our hands. Yep, which was kind of fun. <laughs> that was crazy. That that stuff would not happen. Would not fly today. No, no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. It's those are the great days, great times. Yeah, yeah, we got to experience them, right? Yep. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> did you ever really play in any full blown cover bands? Or pretty much well, that, 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 well that, that first band I was in was a cover band. It was, it was called Prodigy. It was a lounge band. We would play pubs up in Canada, mm-hmm. and, and that way, like, attached to hotels. So we would actually do five nights in a row, 44 songs a night. And that's how I started. Um, that, when it comes to actually playing covers, over the past, I'd say, 15 years, uh, original bands, the, the, actually the, the Bent Richard that I told you I joined in 97, we fell apart a few years after I joined, and then we got back together a few years back. And I started telling the guys, you know what, let's throw some covers in, because we have fun playing covers. And then it got to the point, I'm like, you know what, nobody cares about our original stuff. Let's just go out and play all covers. And we did that for a couple of years. Okay. Uh, we, we do Motorhead, the Ramones, of uh, God, I can't remember everything we did. We even did a song by the Subhumans called "Slave to My Dick," which was my my uh, request. Uh, we, and we did some Elvis Costello. We we were having fun, man. We were just, you know what? If we didn't get paid, that's fine. If we had a few beers, they, they on the house, that was fine. We just loved to get together and play. I was in a band with people I loved hanging out with, and that had never happened before until I joined Bent Richard. 
like I love those guys like brothers. It will always be brothers. Yeah, you know, you've got three, four, five, sometimes six heads, minds working together. You got to be a tight family. You got to be a good family and be able to get along. So yeah, well, it's hard to find that in a band. You know, if you find you know a group of guys that can play music that love hanging out with each other, you stick with that, man. You do whatever you do. If if nobody likes your music. Go play covers, but don't lose that that family that you got because you can't. It doesn't come around that often. You can't just go out and find that. No, no. Uh, were you ever a fan of going down to L.A. and hanging out or doing the L.A. scene or anything like that? Because I know a number of nope. guys from Seattle went down there. Um, never. Yeah, only to tur- only to turn around and come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, some of them, but yeah, I mean, eventually they did come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, no, uh, that was not me. My first trip to L.A., I think it was like 86 or 87, and a girlfriend was going on vacation and took me down there with her. And, you know, we did we did Hollywood. We did Disneyland, Universal Studios. I wound up hanging out at the cat house and, and ran into Eric Carr and chit-chatted with him for a bit, which is very fucking cool. Hell yeah. But uh, I, I can handle L.A. for maybe three days at the most i don't like going down there really it's it's so superficial it's who do you know what do you do it's like yeah whatever fuck you you know yep uh uh, i you know i still i might have my cat house um card membership card oh you had one of those yeah did the first i remember the first time when i went down there and it was just like recently after they opened and i had a Yamaha Seika turbocharged motorcycle. And this was uh-huh. a few hours uh, before the, the doors were going to open. Um, pull up there. A guy looked at the bike, looked at me and said, don't even think about parking here in about two hours with that rice grinder. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And I literally, I, no, yeah. I parked like two blocks away. So. Good for you. <laughs> Super yeah, you, know, you never know if somebody's going to come over. Yeah, you don't know if somebody's going to come out and kick it over because it's not a Harley. And that's exactly what he's getting at. Yep. But no, it surprises, yeah, yeah, me. Right on. surprises me that you uh, weren't the, the Hollywood scene type of guy. I mean. No, no, not not at all. Seattle's my home. You know, I, there was, I had plenty going on up here. I had friends that when the whole L.A. metal scene thing happened, but, you know, I was telling you about the guys from Slaughterhouse Five. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they, uh, two of them went down to LA to try to get in on that whole scene. And one of them came back within a month. The other one stayed down there for over five years and actually wound up, uh, working door at a couple clubs and got to know some people, but it, it never happened for him. But, uh, yeah, it's like, no, no, I'll stay right here, man. I know Seattle. I don't need to move to another city where I don't know anybody. I'm not connected. I'll never leave Seattle because I'm connected here. I know this city, and this city knows me. There's no reason for me to go anywhere else. Dude, and if you're talking about right now, recent, I think you've probably got a pretty nice garden, too. You've, be- you've become a green <laughs> yes, thumb, a gardener. <laughs> oh, I call it my zen garden. I, I built an area, a covered area, for if it's, if it's raining outside, I can sit out there and listen to the rain. I have all kinds of flowers. You get the, you know, the the birds and the bees and the, and now my wife is actually taken to feeding crows. They come around and and uh, it's 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 serenity. That's why I call it the Zen Garden. I just go out there and 
spark up a joint, relax, and maybe listen to some music or just listen to the rain. You know, it's funny to to get this contrasting vision of you doing that and then when you put on the makeup to do the almost human so uh the, your kiss tribute stuff now um recently like last year somebody left right and then mm-hmm. you're starting that back up and you've already started how's that coming along? yeah so well, well let's see let's let's jump back the almost human was a band that started four years before i joined and just like Gene's Edition, it was supposed to be a one and done. They they did it for somebody's girlfriend's birthday party at the Comet. And then they kept getting requests to play again. But then their bass player left. And then they started advertising. And somebody says, hey, uh, Joe, these guys are looking for uh, a Gene Simmons to join their band. I'm like, well, I saw them play once. And to be honest, they suck. <laughs> and so, so I said, for two weeks, I'm like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. And then my wife's like, well, you know... If you, you always wanted to play in an in a, in a honest-to-goodness Kiss tribute where you can get, you know, justify getting the platforms and the costume and everything. She says, if you join the band, wouldn't you make it a better band because you're very detail-oriented? And I'm like, you know what? You're right. So I reached out to the guys. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. And the great thing is they knew who I was because they'd heard about Gene's addiction. And uh, I found out from one of the guys, they said, you know, it's the only way we can make this band work is if we can talk Joe Dredd into joining the band. <laughs> So uh, there we go. That started, and uh, I've been doing that. I do believe six years now. But yeah, we are our uh, our, our original Paul Stanley left the band, and we found uh, then we found a, a local guy who also played in uh, two other tribute bands in town, and he took it on and did a good job. But his his work his where he makes his money to pay his mortgage kind of got in the way where he had to whittle it down. And I do believe he's maybe only doing this one band now because work got in the way. So now we have a guy, his name is Chris Buick. We found him on Spokane, believe it or not. And uh, he, uh, we uh, had a rehearsal with him uh, just last weekend for the first time in uh, over three months because of this whole COVID lockdown thing. And the guy's a great performer. Uh, he lives and breathes Paul Stanley. We even had him rehearse in platform booths to get him used to him. <laughs> um, good, good guy. I can't wait to do a show with him. We have something scheduled for Tulalip Casino, August twenty eighth. We still don't know if it's going to happen or not because of uh, what phase we may be in. So right now it's still booked. It's not canceled. Wow. So uh, uh, that's where we're at right now. Definitely look forward to that. Uh, so mm-hmm. let's get back into some of this base gear stuff that we we're kind of talking about earlier because. I would imagine that you've amassed uh, a somewhat of a collection of bases. Of uh, uh, bases? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, uh, for a few years ago, I was buying cheap bases right and left and amps and stuff. And I actually started whittling some of that down. But, uh, yeah, the, the Gibson Grabber is my oldest one. And that one I actually... Uh, I, I, I thought the pickup sounded like shit. So I had somebody fabricate a new pick card so I could do a PJ pickup setup in it. So when people that, that are fishing autos, they look at it and go, what the hell is that? I go, hey, hey, calm down. It's just new pickups. That's all it is. That's all it is. Um, let's see. Uh, of course, I, I have a, I, I got a, a Punisher base, but it's not a traditional Punisher base because you, you can't get one cheaply. 
they they are they are not out there to be found uh, for under a thousand bucks. So I, uh, I you know I need one as a tool for uh, portraying Gene Simmons. Mm-hmm. So I I got one made in China for under four hundred bucks. And as uh, soon as I got it, wait a yeah. second, did you do one of those uh, G and H or whatever the place is the uh, I, I call them like. China bockers, chicken bockers, and stuff like that. Did you have one of those made? Oh yeah, chips. It's it's, it's uh, a, a, the company called AliExpress. A lot of people heard of them. Yeah. They do uh, they do replica guitars. And when I got it, I, and it played fine. The only problem with it is it had the the, the bridge cover was for a jazz bass instead of a P bass. And I'm like, no, that's wrong. That needs to go. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, uh, of course, I wound up swapping out all the hardware. I swapped out the pickups. I, I swapped out everything on it. But then I had a friend of mine make a leather face with uh, with pyramid studs on it. So now it's 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 studded on the face. Oh man! Which which you know, Gene Simmons has uh, a few Punishers like that that somebody made for him. And I actually met the guy last year that made those for him and showed him my pictures, and he goes. Oh, you put it on leather and put it in goes, why did I think about that? That would have been easier than what I did. But yeah, there you go. But uh, I got the Battle Axe bass. Um, I got a Tapanini acoustic electric. I have a, a Epiphone Jack Cassidy gold top, which I love. Ooh, yeah, how do you like that? Um, oh, I love it. I, I got it for my bir- I got it as a birthday gift. Uh, nine years ago, and I love that bass. It sounds so sweet, plays so nice. I put some flat wounds on it. It is, it is very cool. But uh, my uh, my my bass that I love the most is I I found a well I, after reading an interview with Jeff McKagan about his original j- jazz special that he got. Mm-hmm. I uh, I uh, basically I, I went looking for one of those. It's like like a mid eighties Japanese uh, jazz special. And the one thing I love about it, it doesn't have a pit card. Everything's, you know, routed out and mounted through the back. So uh, I put a, a custom hot rod flame paint job on it, swapped out all the hardware for chrome hardware instead of the black that it comes with. And I even I even swapped out the pickups and put the EMG geezer butlers in it. It's like, you know what, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna upgrade it, let's go balls out and upgrade it from front to back, top to bottom. Oh. And, and I, I call that my forever base. I will never sell that. You can put that one in my coffin with me. That's going nowhere. Yeah, I could have swore I saw you one time playing. Uh, it may have been a, like a powder puff blue P bass. I don't know if it was a yeah. Jazz that, that that was a P bass, a Mexican P bass that I got uh, off of uh, Craigslist. I think it was for under three hundred bucks, and it had been hot rotted. And I loved that bass. I used that primarily through my Bent Richard days of, of uh, late. And actually, I just sold that one about six months ago because I got to the point where it's like, okay, I've had this one a long time, and now I've got my new Hot Rod Jazz Special. I don't need the P-Bass as well. I was, I'm starting to whittle down my collection a bit. Uh, I think at the most I had 14 bases, and now I'm down to nine. It's a little <laughs> bit more reasonable, right? <laughs> yeah, and of course, my my wife says you know you can only play one at a time. It's like yeah, but each has its own special purpose, you know. I mean that is so true. It's just like well, we we want to have kids. We you know if we have them, what are we gonna do? Just stop, stop loving them? <laughs> Hell no. 
told me you got your smart one, you got your pretty one, you got your one that's good with their hands. You know, they they, don't, they all have their own special purpose. <laughs> Do you, I mean, have you amassed uh, amps or gone through different type of amps as well? Or oh, I'm I'm a I've always been a big fan of the uh, Ampeg SVT because like, that's been the the bass player's workhorse for decades. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have, you know, I have the eight ten cabinet. I have, uh, I and I don't go for the old big tube heads for Ampeg. Those can be heavier to carry than the damn cabinet at times. Yeah. So I've I've got the two of the seven pros. I've got a four pro, and uh, let's see. Um, and I've got this little GK, one of those like tiny little heads. You know, they they starting to make their own miniature uh, bass heads. Oh yeah. I got one of those. Yeah, I got one of those that'll fit in the gig bag for rehearsals. I picked up a couple eight ten cabinets, like for like two hundred bucks. And uh, at one point, we had two rehearsal spaces, and I had eight ten cabinet at each space, and I would just bring that little head and plug in for rehearsals. Damn, I can't believe you're still using eight tens, those giant cabs. Well, dude, if, if you're trying to portray Gene Simmons, you gotta bring the gear. That's true. That is true. All right, so get you know, the- I, I I even have an, an Ampeg uh, a never loaded eight ten cabinet that I put on stage for just staging. So it's really lightweight. You can move it with one arm, but uh, yeah, I just set it next to the loaded one and go, yeah, okay, now all of the stage looks complete. And I think we both know of bands that have done that. Big bands. Um, yeah, Kiss did it. <laughs> <laughs> Kiss, uh, Van Halen. Wait a second. Weren't, wasn't Van Halen Kiss? Or was Kiss Van Halen? Yeah. Remember those days when that rumor <laughs> was going around when Van Halen was first coming out? No, yeah. That was that was a stupid rumor. I didn't believe that at all. Oh, no. 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 So, uh, ever hear of a an Ampeg 910? No. I had an Ampeg 910. What? Yeah. So I later on in the years I found out rumor was that that was uh, a geezer's cab. It was a nine ten geezer's. That's what I was. Or you told. say like ge- ge- when a geezer butler? butlers? Yeah. Yep. And you let it go, huh? Um, so I let it bit go because so I was in this band and the drummer got mad at me. I went back to a rehearsal place, started playing, and it sounded funny. I, I pulled the um, the front off. All my cones were slashed. Oh, what a dick. Yeah. So the way that this thing was set up, it was set up as three tens, with each with uh, the separate ports, but it was in one gigantic refrigerator-sized cab. So it was a 910 uh-huh. camp peg. But I've never seen anybody else that had one. And everybody says, no, it was an 810, dude. I said, no, 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 910. <laughs> yeah, it was a 910. I've never heard of the 910, dude. You had, like, unique stuff you let go. You could have put new speakers in that. I was just a stupid young kid. You know, speaking of stupid stuff you let go, when I, when I uh, was ready to upgrade from my Gibson EDO, I went down to Guitar Center, and they only made these for two years, but it was a, a Silver Burst Flying V bass, and I, and I, I had one. And now they they go for about twenty five hundred bucks now, and it's like yeah, well I had one, and then I actually had an Ibanez flying V at one time as well. 
which was uh well the, the gibson flying v was like the the it was like a shorter scale mm-hmm. neck but the but the ibanez was a full scale and it, it was heavy it was heavy and i was what like 22 i was i was a dude i was a skinny kid I couldn't handle that thing. It's trapped around my neck for more than 45 minutes. But people that don't play don't really realize that that weight, you know, eight, nine, nine and a half pounds, starts to kill your neck and your shoulder after a little while. That's true. That's very true. And uh, that's another reason why I hang on to that Gibson Grabber. The thing is lightweight. It's not neck heavy. And I call that one my full-on stage rock guitar. Uh, it's 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 easy to play. It doesn't tire you out. You can let go of it, and there's no neck dive. Love that. So how come or have you ever owned the Ripper? No, no. The, the Grabber is the only thing I've done. I wanted a G3 years back, but those are heavy as well. I wasn't that impressed with the Les Paul-style headstock on that one. I always thought the, the pointed flying V type of headstock looked better with mm-hmm. that body style. Yeah. You know, back in the day, I was all about looks. That's why I was getting flying V bases. If I would have been smart, I would have got myself a fucking a precision base made in the early 70s and called it good. But no, it was about the look. I, I didn't want to have a fender because that was boring looking. Everybody's had those since the 50s. Those are boring. I want something flashy. And I'm glad I got out of that phase before the whole pointy guitar thing came up in the <laughs> 80s, you know? Oh, man. Yeah, it's... Although I, I, I always did want a Warlock, though, because those look fucking badass. For a short period, I wanted a Warlock myself, but I I, I had my dream base, and I yeah. let it go. I had a 78 4001 Jet Glow Ricky. Brand new. No, really? Brand new, yeah. I got it. Yep. What happened? So, so I actually bought it from Canelli Keys. And it's four hundred and seventy-five dollars with the case, brand new. Wow! Uh, yeah, wow! That and this was I bought it in like eighty, so it was a uh-huh. brand new, two years old. Well, I ran into this other guy. We're talking, and um, I was pretty good at the time. In fact, I was better back then than I am now. Um, I don't know why. Maybe I played more back then. But uh, this guy was really good, and he had a brand new um, American-made jazz. A seventy-eight, and we yeah. tr- and we traded. Well, I Either. think you got the better deal in the long run. Yes, but then I turned around, Joe. This is bad. I turned around and yeah. I traded that um, U.S. made uh, jazz. Um, I went to <laughs> Seattle on First Avenue, and I went to a pawn shop, and I traded it for a Crown Les Paul Crown Japanese. Knock off straight across. Oh, okay, you know what? Do I get to smack you when I see you for that? That was stupid, dude. <laughs> dude, that was really stupid. That was way stupid. You, that man, that 78 Jazz, that, that's gold. Yeah. Uh, but I actually have heard that this guitar, the guy that got it, he still has it. And he says that everybody that's anybody in the Seattle area um, has played that guitar. And it still hangs on his really? wall. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's got some history to it. Yeah, it, it does now. It didn't when I bought it. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, man. Um, well, maybe it's a good thing you let him have it. So it, it's got some history. 
that's that's right. I mean, people got to play it. They got to love it. Me, it would have just sat in a corner or something like that, or I would have destroyed the damn thing. I traded for a ham sandwich or something. Um, yeah, I probably would have ended up doing that um, somewhere down the road. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, right. um, just to, I don't know how much time you have, but I, I'm enjoying this conversation just listening to you about uh, Seattle music scene and you. I mean. There's well, so that's, I really don't know where else we, we, we can go on this. Um, uh, other yeah. than, you know, the music scene of today, I mean, we kind of touched on that where it, it's it's like pulling teeth try to get people to go out to see your shows. Um, yeah, well, you know, you, you also have to remember that um, we're not in our 20s and starved for entertainment like we were when we were in our 20s. We've yeah. uh, we've been there. We've done that. Uh, the only time I go out to see, see live music is if I'm going to see my friends. I don't go to see a band I've never heard of because uh, after, what, 15, 20 minutes, I'll be like, all right, what am I going to do now? I'm bored, you know? Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, it, takes, it takes a lot to entertain me these days because I've seen so much and done so much. It's like, yeah, what? Come on, show me something I haven't seen. Blow me away. You're not going to blow me away because I've seen it all. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. You know what? I, I'm i with you on that. I'll go out and I'll see some local bands. Or if I catch wind that somebody's supposed to be good, I'll go check it out. Um, right. If worse comes to worse, I mean, I'll just bring my camera and I'll just take some photos of the band or something like that just to be occupied. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I it, see it. There's great talent locally, but I haven't been blown away by a local band or a sound or something right you know, not yeah. in a long time well, i like uh, i like how this this whole thing and i, and I know this bad is going to go away at some point but the whole tribute band thing that's going on right now that that seems to be big yes i i like that idea because you're going to see a band that you know all the goddamn songs you probably know most of the lyrics so you're going to be entertained because it's music that you like. Like there's a, was well, appetite for deception that uh, guns and roses tribute. I think they're out of Portland or something. Mm-hmm. I saw those guys and that was a good show. These guys sounded great. Their little Axl Rose singer fucking killing it. And I'm like, okay, that was a good time. That was a really good time. You know, that's goes with you guys with, uh, with your almost human, you, you guys go full bore. I mean, the makeup, the, the works, um, so it's yeah. very, very yeah. entertaining. And like you said, you know, the songs and it's like, I, you know, I, I look at disco and kiss as kind of being same. People will say, <laughs> I hate kiss, but you, you see them at the show. <clears throat> I hate disco. You see them on the floor dancing, uh, kind of like, yeah, Nickelback, okay, I like, was made for loving you. Or yeah, <laughs> kind of like Nickelback, right? <laughs> you know, and you know, you know, here's the thing. I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, Nickelback has been getting a bad rap for the last few years. Mm-hmm. They are they are a band that sold millions of records. I've seen them live before. I think it was at the Tacoma Dome uh, some years back. They put on a good show, and I actually did some research. There was something online. It's like, why is it that people say Nickelback sucks? Nickelback writes their songs in, through a formula. Um, it's, it's kind of a set formula. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it's like, that's nothing wrong with that. That's called right to pop music. Yeah. People, people want, they call it pop music because it's popular, not because it's poppy. 
because if it's popular, it's considered pop music. And that's what the general public wants. They want to buy that stuff. The people that are slamming Nickelback are the people that are probably into Tool and other stuff like that, where they don't want pop. They want you to create something new they've never heard before. Well, leave that up to Tool. That's not Nickelback. Nickelback is making music for the masses, and that's why they've sold so much, and they can sell out when they play. I have no problem with Nickelback. They're doing it the right way. They are making themselves, they're setting themselves up for retirement so they don't have to work anymore. Good for them. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right on that. It's, it's, they have a formula and it's one of those, it's almost like a country thing. You could sing along with it. Yeah. And it's easy. Yeah. So, you remember that song they came out with years back called Animal? About the guy picking up the girl in the car and they're going to go make out in the car. Yep. That's when I went, I like this band. That song kicked my ass. And it was after they did the song, uh, I want to be a rock star, that people started shitting on them. Yeah. It was after that. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're saying they want to be a rock star. But, hey, look, they got Billy Gibbons singing on their song. They've got Gene Simmons in the video. Maybe people thought, oh, well, look at these guys. I want to be a rock star. And this, maybe that's what turned people against them. Yeah. But do. before that, people loved them. And then something happened. I don't know. I didn't judge them that way. No, I, I didn't either. In fact, uh, it was probably three weeks ago I was listening to Nickelback. Uh, not just the song, just just a bunch of songs. I don't know if you ever remember uh, uh, like a, this metal band called Coven. Um, yes, yes, I do. So it was a guitar player, Dean, and I were driving around, and he's the one that threw in Nickelback. And then we're listening uh-huh. to Nickelback, like an entire album. So, and then wait, wait, wait a minute. Somebody, somebody from Coven said, let's listen to Nickelback? That just yeah. doesn't sound right. Yeah. And he said, hey, this stuff sounds kind of good. I like it. Yeah. But, yeah, well, like I said, they're, they're writing popular music. They're writing songs that are pleasing to the ear. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to create something new. They just want to give you some, they just play a rock and roll, man. It's just rock and roll. Yep. It, I, I, I know I'm going off on a tangent again, but... Um, there's one thing I did not ask you, is not only are you a bass player, you sing. How, when did that happen? Well, or was it like forced on you? Or did you say, if I'm going to oh, be Gene, I got to do this. I got to learn. Or were you singing? Uh, no, that? actually, I was uh, eight, 18 the first time I sang in front of anybody. Uh, um, I had met this guy who wanted to be in my rock and roll mentor through my early 20s. And... Uh, uh, I, I started playing in his little band and we were doing covers and he wanted to do 18 by Alice Cooper. And I'm like, oh, cool. He goes, no, but you have to sing it. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, you're the guy in the band that's 18 years old. So you get to sing 18. And that's how I was pushed into doing it. And we played a party and my older brother was there. And afterwards he goes, I didn't know you could sing. I go, I didn't either. Someone had to make me do it to, for me to find out. That's awesome. And that's how that started. 18 years old, man. Yeah, so you've been doing it for a long time. Yes, I have. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, but uh, we had you come up on stage at the uh, J&M Cafe and uh, play out one of our Kiss tunes in the, one of the bands I was in. And what, had, oh, what, what, what was it? It wasn't the Hurting Cats, was it? Uh, nope. Um, no, uh, the Mon- Montro. Yeah, uh, yeah, we were, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Montro. Yep. Wasn't it Montro? Yeah. Yes, yep. yes, we did uh, Cold Gin, I think. Yes, it was. 
Uh, Dude, there's a there's a video out there on that. It's got to be on YouTube. Uh, yes, it is. I, I saw it about a year or so ago. It popped up. I'm like, oh, wow, I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, it's great having you up there. Dude, I mean. Thank you. It, me, it, was, it was fun to jump up there and do that. For me to you, uh, as a local Seattle guy, always loved your playing, your style, and who you are. So, Well, thank you, always. Chuck. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, again, like you said, August 28th is, uh, was that the date for Almost Human at uh, Tulalip Casino? Yes, yeah, so Friday, August 28th, Tulalip Casino, start time at 7 p.m. sharp. They're very sticky about start and stop time. So we're, uh, I do believe, 7 to 8.30. And then come 9 o'clock, that room turns into something else and probably have a dance band come on or something. Mm, okay. And it's usually free on Friday nights for... It, it is. It is free. No cover charge. The The tough thing is getting to Tulalip on a Friday afternoon to get there by 7. That's that's the problem, especially if you're coming from Seattle. You know, uh, traffic on Fridays in Seattle is horrible. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully everybody that's listening and you, you need something to do, and especially if you haven't seen Kiss Tribute, a great one, Got to go out and see these guys. Got to go out and see you. Yeah, come on up. We'll rock and roll all night and party every day. And uh, and uh, I was made for loving you. And call me Doctor Love and God of Thunder. <laughs> and we'll see you in the platforms and the works, right? That's right. I'll be wagging my tongue at all the little girlies, making them moist in the nether regions. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> how did Gene get that tongue so freaking long? Well, you know, people are born with shit like that. Yeah. I've, I've seen videos of girls with long tongues. It's like, damn, oh, I got an idea. I got an idea what you can do with that. <laughs> you know, here's the crazy. I mean, here we go. We're talking more. Because I, I remember some rumors with Gene Simmons. They said, oh, yeah, you know that little thing underneath your tongue that holds it in place? He had that cut, surgically cut, so his tongue just rolls out. Yeah, it's so, a bad rumors. Bad. Yeah. There were so many rumors about kids back in those days. Because they uh, they kept everything kind of secret, you know. There's uh, what that that uh, Tom Snyder interview that they did uh, the Tomorrow Show years back, uh, where uh, Tom Snyder asked, uh, "All right, uh, true confessions. Where are you from?" And Gene's like, "Well, our, our manager's off side stage." He goes, "Is this true confessions or am I on? I'm on. All right, we're from New York. <laughs> well, we know now that Gene was born in Jerusalem, so that's why it was not true confessions. You're on. Be your character." Because that's what they were selling us with characters. Now, that was one of the greatest things about uh, Kiss back in the day. It's the inaccessibility or the accessibility. I, I don't know what to really call it. But just you you were able to look up at them. I mean, that might sound weird, but I, I would get those damn magazines. And you'd see him with his scarf around just his lower face. And he's out with Cher, you know. Or you uh-huh. see yep. makeup and all this other stuff. I'm sure I've got some of those things plastered behind a, a dresser at my parents' house. Right. But, but yeah, it was just it was so great. Parade magazine and all that stuff back then. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, well, they, they learned you put Kiss uh, on the cover of magazines. Kids are going to buy it. And uh, they that we did. And, you know, we cut out the cool pictures and put them on our wall and destroy those magazines. I'm going to go buy another one next month because I tore this one up. Uh, yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you, I don't. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just glad to say that I do not hang on to that stuff anymore. You know, I was a kiss. There's a lot of people out there that are kiss collectors, 
and I was for a while. And then I thought, no, you know what? I need to, because every time I move, I have to move this stuff. So I wound up giving a lot of my KISS stuff away to people that have like KISS shrines in their homes. As a matter of fact, um, my dragon head boots, Right. Uh, the, the dragon, the dragon heads are like shells that are like, screwed onto the platform boots. And my dragon heads got kind of beat up and I ordered a new set. So when I got the new set, I took the old ones and I gave one of each to these, these females I know that have kiss shrines in their homes. So my dragon heads got added to their kiss shrines. That's pretty cool. You know, that's the one thing I got to say, Joe, is that if somebody doesn't know you, like I, I knew who you were. But mm-hmm. you're a pretty fucking uh, well. It's my show. I guess I could say that you're a pretty fucking nice guy, <laughs> man. You you're really well. Thank you. You're, you're like down to earth. You know, I see some of this stuff that you put on your uh, Facebook things about. That's why I mentioned the gardening and your the birds and your dog that you got. Your puppy who's growing mm-hmm. up now. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So yeah. you're a really good guy. I gotta say that. So, yeah. Well, if, if you catch, I'm a good guy at most of the time. But there are times when people will uh, do me wrong, and I could be a bitter fucking asshole. So you better be nice. <laughs> well, anybody that's 6'4", nah, you just better be nice no matter what. <laughs> that's right. Hey, in closing, a couple last questions. Your favorite Kiss song and oh, either your favorite, wow. or, and your favorite movie or the next movie you're going to. Okay, my favorite Kiss song. That's a tough one because there's like the, the ones I like performing with Almost Human, the one where I get to go balls out and calling Dr. Love. But I also really love the baseline on Sure Knows Something, which I, I learned a few years back. Uh, but when it comes down to like, I guess I'm going to have to go old school. My favorite Kiss song would have to be Watching You. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite movie? Oh. Uh, I'm going way, way, way back to this. I, I own it on Blu-ray, and I got it as a request because I will never get tired of this movie, The Wizard of Oz. Serious. All right, there's that nice guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, it is because, you know, when I was a kid, uh, it, they, would, they would show it on TV once every year. And one year, I got my little cassette recorder out there with a blank tape, and I put it down by the speaker to the TV, and I recorded the whole movie. And I would, like, play that tape and learn all the songs, learn the dialogue. And, uh, you know, I, and I basically it was setting me up for learn, what I was going to be doing when I started going to see Rocky Horror Picture Show when I was a teenager. Because <laughs> that's another one of those movies where I know all the songs and I know most of the dialogue. <laughs> wow. I, I, I hope. I hope The Wizard of Oz never gets ruined like some of these other shows and movies have gotten ruined, meaning, you know, with uh, the, the of recent, they were talking about with Yosemite Sam and Elmer Fudd. Did you hear that? Where they're oh, saying that they're yeah, going to Yeah, yeah, well, they're going to take, they're going to, they're, yeah, they're not going to have guns and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that. No, some, I don't. Uh, yeah. You, you can't ruin The Wizard of Oz. It's, it's a classic. You can't touch it. It's It's done. You can't add anything. You can't take anything away. It's been this way for decades. It's done. Everybody leave it the fuck alone and have to answer to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah you heard it. You heard it. So, hell. All right, so I'm going to go and watch Wizard of Oz tonight on Netflix. Thanks for having me on your podcast, and I want to say you are a powerful and attractive man, and I appreciate you. All right, thanks, Chuck. We'll see you around. <laughs>